Good morning and welcome to this another edition of Ordinary Life live streamed. No matter where you are, I'm glad you're able to join us. Did you know, Holly, that today is John Wesley's birthday? You know, I don't have that marked on my calendar, but happy birthday, John Hey, Wesley. Johnny, happy <laughs> birthday. Yeah, it is. I read that this morning uh, in uh, the Writer's Almanac, Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac, uh, which I get, and he has these great quotes and great uh, people. And so it has a little bio of John Wesley and how he got started. It's really, really interesting. So, Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, and we as a church are doing our best to stay connected with people, and uh, we would really appreciate it if you have needs or concerns or gifts that you can volunteer, uh, call us at 713-528-0527 or go to the St. Paul's website and um, you can find out all sorts of things. The website has just recently been completely redone so that you can have access to live streams. I think now they've put a prominent page or link to Ordinary Life there. And um, just in case you did not know this, if you miss one of these presentations, you can go on the Ordinary Life live stream page and be taken to the YouTube that will be uploaded sometime after today of this very class. So it'll be in kind of an archive format if you ever want to go and watch that again. One of the things about St. Paul's that I think attracts probably more people than any other single thing is the wonderful music program that we have here. We have a large adult choir. Anna Teagarden does a wonderful job with children of all ages. And of course, during this time when we're shut down, it's very difficult for the choir together. Choirs spread the virus faster than any other group, musical groups does, because yeah. they're expelling a, a lot of stuff. Every year, the Royal School of Church Music has a school here, the Gulf Coast School here, at um, Anna and a great group of volunteers headed by Beth Brown and others uh, run. And we, every year, as Ordinary Life, have um, we provide lunch and they come and entertain us. Mm -hmm. And this would be their last Sunday today. Yeah, that's about the time of year, aren't we? Yeah. So um, I got information from Beth Brown that um, they are going to have a special program that Beth and Anna and Chris Newland have labored over to put together this afternoon live streamed at 430. Hmm. And I would really encourage you to watch it. Um, it's just such a great program and the kids come from all over to participate in this. So at 4.30 this afternoon, I am inviting you to join me and everybody else who will wanna be there to, to watch these kids um, from the RSMC. I'm sorry that we couldn't do them uh, in, in person. I may be wrong in the time, it's four o'clock. I just got corrected by our floor crew. <laughs> Thanks, John, John Watson. John Watson just said, <laughs> four o'clock, four o'clock. All right, four o'clock. I'll be there uh, live stream. So tune in and watch it. There's this thing here. Yep. That, Can you reach it? Yeah, I hope I don't knock over any water. Whew. All right, so we've got our offering plate, and normally we would pass it, but 
Since we're virtual, our offering is also virtual. If you are moved to give to Ordinary Life, our proceeds go towards charities and uh, nonprofits serving the poor and underserved populations in Houston and around. Um, so if you go to our website and click the donate button, it'll take you to St. Paul's where you just write Ordinary Life in the memo. There's a video of how to do it and verbal instructions. So if you wish to donate online, it's there for you and we appreciate it very, very much. It goes to a good cause. We're trying to, um, I know that Dr. Jeff McDonald, our senior pastor and some uh, he's heading up and some other groups are heading up and Holly and I have talked about how Ordinary Life can do this to go back and try to provide some sustenance and support to first responders here in Houston at this time. We haven't figured out the details of that yet, but. Calling on Richard Wingfield for his ideas. He had some for how to, uh, what organizations were giving meals to first responders. So just a little. So we did that nudge. once and so we would <laughs> like to do it again and just be aware of that if you yeah. feel the need to make special contribution yeah. uh, to that. So there, there would normally be, I didn't get it out today, the ringing of the gong, the singing bowl, um, and uh, we'd stop our sacred cookie consumption. And I would say to all of those who were both present and those who were watching, no matter where you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, and by the way, I hope your spiritual practices are sustaining you during this time, but most of you are now pajama people or mimosa people or uh, if you're in some other time zone, wine and cheese people, no matter where you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So Holly and I are calling uh, today's talk, um, or time, I guess you would call it, responding to an altar call. No, that's not misspelled. It's a play on words. I'm hunching that, uh, is that a word, hunching? You just made it one. Okay. I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hunching that uh, most of you know what an altar, A-L-T-A-R call is. If you grew up in an evangelical church uh, like I did and you did. And I grew up in this church. In this church. Yeah. Well, this would. But I've definitely been privy to altar calls. Okay. Yeah. Summer camps. Yep. <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> At the end of the service, the preacher, always a male, would uh, ask people if you wanted to accept Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior to please come forward during the singing of the last hymn and you got it made. You're in the club. And um, that's a very important thing to consider and to think about. But today we're using that. Uh, we would sing just as I am mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. that. The altar call in the Methodist church is very mild compared to the Southern Baptist church. Yeah. It's kind of like, if you want to be baptized, come on up. <laughs> well, this is a different kind of altar call because we are basing it on, I just lost this. Let me work on it. Uh, it's this one. I'm, I'm back. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got to be careful. We're basing it on the second step on the Eightfold Path, which is uh, about right thought. We need to alter our thinking if we're going to go forward into a uh, different kind of future. 
I don't know how long ago it was when Holly and I decided that we were going to at least base part of this period of time in ordinary life uh, on a series called Interbeing, How Jesus and Buddha Can Guide Us Through the Pandemic. I think at the time that we made this decision, we were in COVID. We began this in the beginning of March, but the, the line had begun to decrease about the number of infections that were here. We had, when we came up with this particular title, no way of knowing about the shooting of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd and the repercussions that that would have and is having, are having uh, in, in our culture. Houston, Texas is now the epicenter for the infection rate and hospitalizations of COVID-19. If you don't know how to keep up with this, when I send the summary of this time today out, I'm going to put a link to the Texas Medical Center's information about the COVID uh, increases and what the rates are uh, in, in Texas. It's very instructive to, to know about this. Um, we know what to do about this. We know what to do to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Now, there's a lot that we don't know and a lot that we have to learn, but we do know how to reduce the, the new cases and how to reduce them sharply. You should wear a face mask. This, you got one? Mm -hmm. This is the one that I got. I have a cloth one, too, mm -hmm. that was made uh, by somebody here, by Sari Fry. I, I got this one the last time Sherry went to the hospital for her second brain procedure. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to wear them. Everybody has to wear them. They're, they're mandated. How, how did this become so politicized mm. in our yeah. culture? Yeah. Shame on us. Mm. Mm. This ought not to be a political issue. This ought to be in the same category of smoking cigarettes in a public place. You can smoke cigarettes in your home if you want to, but not in public places. You don't have to wear a mask when you're by yourself, but when you're in public places, you should wear a mask. Most of the places that I go into require face masks to be worn, yeah. and yet I see people not doing it. Right. We, we might say also even in this space, we are careful about being six feet away. We don't you know, touch one another, et cetera, but um, we've chosen not to wear a mask as we do the live stream, in part because you can't see our face move behind it. Um, but we do have them coming in and out of the building and um, are being protective in other ways. So. Have you seen this? Yes. Thou shalt wear a mask in public, how Genesis 316? <laughs> yes. They ought to hold that up at football games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Someone sent me also this graphic, which I think is really wonderful. Having some states locked down and some states not locked down <laughs> is like having a peeing <laughs> section in a swimming pool. <laughs> I'd like to use that analogy about all sorts of things re regarding this virus. Yeah. So if the surge that we are experiencing right now is it reversed, we will create a larger pool of people who have the virus and who can spread it to others. 
This morning before I left the house, I picked up the issue of the Week magazine that came yesterday and read William Falk's editorial. And he said that when the European Union opens up to tourists at the beginning of July, there are three countries, third world, I think he called them, or poor countries that will not be admitted to the European Union and then the United States is one of them. Mm -hmm. That's where we are in the world's view, mm -hmm. which is really, really, really sad. Um, some people think that you either have to go all the way to take precautions or no precautions whatsoever, but there's another way. There's another way to uh, be responsible and to socialize. We went out to dinner last Thursday night with friends of ours. We gathered, uh, there were four of us, we gathered in their backyard. We were distanced. The food was on a table in the middle space between us. We had a great visit outside, fans, shade, um, and it was good. We know what to do. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Physically distant from other people. Don't gather in, in large spaces. Um, so I, I, I want to talk about this virus that I know because I've seen her notes and we've talked a lot about it that Holly's going to build on this. But we're, we're in a really critical major time. Um, I'm not crying chicken little, but the sky is falling. And we need to be aware of that and to be responsible for how we're going to deal with this. When I was coming up through the education system that I did, I was taught that the human race had received three ontological shocks. The word ontology has to do with being. It has to do with how we perceive our being, how we perceive who we are and our place in the universe, things that we hold really true and something comes along and knocks the support out from under those cherished beliefs and we have to reorganize our entire way of thinking about everything. And we started saying this, I started saying this shortly after my meeting with Ilya Delio and I know you had a meeting that what that you attended this week. Yeah, she did an online sort of lecture about why science in religion must be copacetic, why religion must embrace science. I hope you talk yeah. more about that before yeah. we go. Yeah. So the three ontological shocks that I was taught about, the first one was the Copernican shock. Copernicus came to the understanding that the earth was not the center of the universe but that the sun was, now we know even so much more than that. Uh, and you know that the Copernican information was fought mainly by the church because if the church embraced it, it would mean a rethinking of everything during a time when not only was the earth seen as the center of the universe, but Europe, particularly Rome, was seen as the center of the earth. And they said, no, this cannot be because they would have to rethink everything. We have gotten to a place where it is okay for Holly and me to talk about the exciting, energizing information that comes to us from the field of evolutionary... Um, cosmology. Um, cosmology. Cosmology, <laughs> thank you. And we can say that in here, and yet 
we go across the plaza when we do to participate in a worship service where the creed and the hymns are all, almost all based on a pre-Copernican worldview. And I'm not getting into how that's okay for some people and bothersome for some other people, uh, but we need to uh, have a way to think about this. There's another shock that comes to us, and that is a shock called the Darwinian shock. In short, this is a shock about... Um, we have a moment. Yeah, we, we have a moment. <laughs> did, did I do that? We lost our video screen, so we'll, it'll be back in a minute, but we'll keep going. <laughs> so we had the Darwinian shock, which, you know, Darwin has been significantly misunderstood and misinterpreted mm -hmm. about. But it, Darwin has become a code word for evolution. Yes, yeah. Even though that's not what he was about. But Well, he, he was about evolution, but he didn't frame it in the way that those who are anti-evolution, so to speak, right. frame it. Framed it. Right. In so, fact, he was a deeply, when he wrestled with it because of his and his wife's spiritual views, he wrestled with, do I release this knowledge into the world? It will disrupt everything. And it was disruptive. Yeah. It yeah. has been disruptive. And there are people even now who still do not believe in evolution, even though evolution is taking place in their bodies as they disbelieve this. Right. But um, I think the big opposition to evolution uh, and why Darwin was such a shock is because um, it makes the human species not special. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really tough for us. Really tough for us that Ilya talked yesterday about the, the myth of Adam, right? And how, she, I think I texted this to you. She said, if you still believe in the myth of Adam, just you. What? <laughs> just you. <laughs> like, you need to be done with that. Uh, because the myth of Adam has kept humans at the center of the story, rather than a part of this long, incredibly long story. Well, the, the, the Adam myth and the archetype of the Adam myth, um, meaning Adam who lived in a state of perfection, fell from that and got kicked out. That's one of the two or three strongest negative archetypes in human Western consciousness and that, that we need to continue to contend with that. Nonetheless, the Darwinian shock was an ontological shock. I remember hearing Richard Rohr say, uh, and I've stolen this material and adapted it so it's mine. I mean, the way that I put it is mine now. But it's like humans believe that God waited until there were Southern Baptists in Tennessee to say anything. <laughs> that's right. I thought that was true. No, that's not true. <laughs> Even the great theologians of the, of the ancient church, the mystics, I'm, I'm thinking now about St. Francis, saw that the original Bible was nature, which has been here all along. Mm -hmm. And that we, we, we humans are just this teeny little blip yeah. on, the, on the screen, and yet we think we're the, main, we're the main show. I think the coronavirus is showing us that may not be the case. Right. There was a time, especially when things began to be printed, that we, we equated the beginning of time with the beginning of the printed word or the beginning of imagery, which was assumed to be only 6,000 years old right, in, mm -hmm. around the 1400s, 
um, the earth was thought to be only 6,000 years old, beginning with humans. Wow. Yeah. So just this past week, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the completion of the first thorough map of the human, first, I said, rough map of the human genome. DNA was discovered in 1953, but it took the Human Genome Project um, 20 years to pin it down. And, um, and, and what, what they were doing is working on how is it exactly, Thanks, thank you, how <laughs> is it exactly that our DNA makes us who we are? Let me see if I can get this advanced. Are we working? Yes. All right. So each cell in the human body contains 23 pairs of chromosomes, and each chromosome is in a bundle of DNA. And if all that DNA in one cell were spread out, it would be like six feet long. It's just amazing what they have discovered about the, the human body. And this DNA contains the instructions for the creation of all physical aspects of, of the human body. And one of the things that we learned from the Human Genome Project is that the entire, now get this, 7.5 billion member human species goes back 7,000 generations to an original population of about 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. So our, our species has only a really modest amount of genetic variation. 0.01%, huh? something like 0.01%. 0.01%. Where in God's name did it come to be believed that from this 60,000 original population, that one's, one aspect of that population was to be preferred or special or to be supreme? How did that happen? Another story well, it, for another time. Uh, another story for another time. There is a history to how all of that happened, which didn't happen until about the 1400s. So the other shock, another shock. Now, these are the three that I were taught. I'm going to add one more, and Holly's going to add several more. <laughs> but uh, the other shock was the Freudian shock. And that's a code word for the discovery of the, uh, of the existence and the, of, and the importance of the unconscious in the human animal. Uh, most of what we are at the, at the cognitive level is unknown to us. It's, it resides in what we call the unconscious. I define the unconscious as we don't know what we don't know. And it's not that we're keeping secrets from ourselves. There's a vast amount of material about us that we simply don't know. We can find out about it through introspection, through meditation, through analysis, either Freudian or Jungian analysis, or paying attention to our dreams, especially paying attention to what ticks us off. Because you can learn a lot about what's going on inside when you see what kind of hooks you in, in the outer world. Um, I think that there is a, another uh, ontological shock that we are being forced to confront, uh, and I've given this the name the pandemic racism ontological shock. Mm -hmm. That's where we are, mm -hmm. and that's why I led up to uh, this one by saying this is not the first ontological shock that we've had. This pandemic 
and the revelation of the systemic racism that is part of American culture. Other cultures have got to think about this for themselves. Um, is, is, this is something on a, order, a, a different level. This is a different order of anything that this country has likely ever experienced before. We're, there, there are going to be some changes coming out of this. We're not going to go back to things as they were. For one thing, this pandemic, pandemic is not going to level off uh, for another six months, maybe longer. So we're going to continue to uh, have to adjust and figure out how we're going to survive uh, with these things. This is one of the reasons that I have been so big on this particular book. Uh, Daramut's Miracles, When the Disciple Comes of Age, is kind of a play on words mm -hmm. uh, of, of a, a Buddhist phrase of when you meet the Buddha on the road, kill, kill him. him. Mm -hmm. And what this book is saying, and this is a theme. I don't know how much other Amuraku stuff you've read, but um, th this Amuraku is on a path mm -hmm. to teach the importance of adult faith formation. He and he talks about that in this book. His sort of switch from practicing the religion of his youth, if you will, mm -hmm. to realizing as an adult, somewhere in probably his 30s, oh. That's not working the way that I thought it needed to work, and began began to write more about mature faith. Right? He, I, I think he has a book called Adult Faith. You said that, but I this this is his most recent work. It's readable. Mm -hmm. It's very it's readable. Yeah. I asked Michael Morewood uh, when we were talking about possibility of his coming and doing a webinar with us if he knew uh, Amurku, and he said, "Oh yes, we're in the same spiritual formation group." Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't understand how he is able to put out almost a book a year. I'd like to be in the form spiritual formation group with those two guys. I would too. That would be <laughs> yeah. great. Oh, by the way, I have a new book um, that, to recommend. I'm always recommending books, but this <laughs> is one. I will get enlightened tomorrow and other funny stories you can tell yourself by who am I? <laughs> Thank you, Wayne Herbert, for that. Do I need to say that this book doesn't really exist, or is that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> well, we should write it. Mm -hmm. I think we're doing that right now. Just kidding. <laughs> Working on it. Well, um, those, uh, you know, that's kind of my initial take to getting into the right, uh, the second step uh, about right thought. Um, our world's been blown apart. It's causing us to alter the way we're thinking about everything. Right, yeah, and I would add actually that one of the other ontological shocks that we've experienced in the last uh, 100 or so years is Einstein's theory of relativity. Alongside Hubble's telescope that put a visual to the reality of universe expansion. So the word relativity is a tricky one because it means one thing in uh, English dictionary, it means another thing in physics, it means another thing in philosophy. And so we can get really trapped in the meaning of that word. But one of the, on the one hand, it means the absence of standards. In physics, it means the dependence of various physical phenomena of relative motion of the observer and the observed objects. In other words, uh, the, my motion is dependent on the motion around me. Gravity is that motion that keeps everything sort of independent relationship to everything else. 
And then in philosophy, it implies an absence of an absolute truth, many paths toward a truth. So the question, I think, becomes, how can we adopt the teachings of Jesus and Buddha? It all belongs, interbeing, we're all interconnected, love and compassion, and not allow ourselves to get too relativistic about values and ethics. I think the physics definition actually applies here to both of their teachings because the dependence of one thing on every other thing is essentially what the physics definition is, mm -hmm. interbeing. So first I want to sort of zoom out and look at relativity cosmologically. Einstein's theory states that the universe is expanding relative to itself in all directions all the time, so it doesn't stop. Gravity impacts objects in space and how they interact with one another. For example, the galaxies farther away from us are moving faster. They're moving more rapidly. But, and there's no single point in the universe that remains fixed. You were talking about um, humans thinking that we are the center, then the Earth being decentered, and humans being decentered in a sense. There is no single center of the universe. In other words, everything is its own center. Right. Right. How's that for relativity? <laughs> and and I, I, I have two responses to that. One is that when um, we talk about going into outer space, we're already in outer yeah, space. We are. We are floating we along are. in outer space like everything else. <laughs> and I remember a college professor describing Einstein's theory of relativity like this. Mm -hmm. He said, if you put your hand on a hot stove, Time is really fast. Mm -hmm. Bing, you mm -hmm. want to take it off. Right. But if you're kissing the first love of your life. <laughs> you remember that moment forever. That time, go <laughs> you want that time to be really slow. I remember my first kiss. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, I think that when we think about uh, morality, this is like right view that we talked about last week. There, is, there are many, many, many points of view but Buddhism does not take morality or ethics out of right view. So right view, even if they can be different views, are led by compassion, morality, ethics, and insight. So there is also a force that counteracts gravity, that keeps this whole beautiful thing in balance. We call it dark matter, and scientists are still working out exactly what it means and how it operates, but they think that it keeps things from flying apart. So the tension, so we need the, the expansion, but we also need the tension to keep things from flying apart. Expansion, or what we call increasing complexity, exists on a biological level if we look at the whole of evolutionary theory. The possibility for life on Earth, for example, began once the planet cooled just enough so that the steam did not evaporate. It became droplets and eventually pooled and became oceans. It's really the oceans or the water that allowed for the first bacteria or life to exist. And from that, life emerges. It did not remain single-celled. It diversified and complexified over the course of time from algae to ferns to redwoods, and then from fish to amphibians to reptiles. The list goes on and on and on. There's something like 900,000 different kinds of insects alone, each with their own form and function. We saw this caterpillar by our pool the other day, and it's so wonderfully weird. It you looks, took this picture? I did. It's just a close-up of the caterpillar. It's beautiful. Isn't it? I, it's, it has these little leaf-like structures coming off of its body. 
And so it prompted us to go inside and Google what kind of caterpillar it was, and it is this caterpillar becomes that. So this is because that is. Universe expansion, biological expansion, is continual and creative. There are so many ways that evolution looks. There's so many ways that, um, that complexity looks. So I heard Ilya Delio say yesterday on her uh, webinar that if we refuse to believe in evolution, we're essentially refusing to believe in life. That makes sense. Yeah. I think we need to seek to understand this same phenomenon in our social world. The question is, I think, if all things belong, if interbeing is the way of reality, how do we expand spiritually and consciously and avoid moral relativism? Consciousness expands relative to the choices we make. So that's where I think relativity comes into play. And our willingness to assess the quality of our choices at every turn. In almost every situation we're in, there is usually a better decision and a worse decision, and both have consequences. Sometimes we, are, we have two bad decisions, sometimes we have two good decisions, what we call win-win, right? But every decision we make has consequences. I believe you've said those exact words to me. Right. <laughs> um, the Jesuit mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, he had such great faith in the human being, in some ways more faith and optimism about the human being than I'm currently willing to have. So I kind of keep reading him, maybe hoping that some of that optimism will dissipate into me. <laughs> he, he really thought that human beings were the answer, the current answer to the expansion of consciousness, as we are the first creatures to have self-conscious self-awareness, right? So we are God perceiving itself, if you will. That God becomes, is part of evolution. God becomes conscious of God's self through this process of evolution, too. We're most likely not the end of the road, but such was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's faith in us that he thought our symbolic consciousness represented an evolutionary quantum leap. Just as Einstein's theory of relativity was a quantum leap in cosmology, or bacteria was a quantum leap in life, at the very least, we are evidence of continual expansion at every level from the physical to the spiritual. Teilhard painted the human being in broad strokes and saw periods marked by evil and suffering as necessary growing pains. These periods serve as teachers or as revelations of dark matter, if you will, that counteract consciousness. We're likely in such a period right now. You could say that we even need these times to help us to learn how to alter our behavior. It's an alter call. Mm -hmm. And while the universe doesn't have to think about its own expansion, it just does, we do exercise choice over how or if we expand consciousness. I think that's what makes the human different. Teilhard was not necessarily a spiritual teacher in the sense that he had sort of a path and a way. He was more like an evolutionary religious philosopher who gave us a panoramic view of the role of human in evolution. Jesus and Buddha, on the other hand, are very specific spiritual teachers who lay guidelines for us for how we ought to live in order to further our expansion. But here's the catch. <laughs> and I think this is where we get into the sort of hardest, easiest thing, the simplicity of the teachings. But if we take them seriously, they are disruptive. These teachings are disruptive. We cannot keep standing in the same place, wedded to our single, narrow position, and expect to grow from them. 
So remember, uh, this slide shows how the eyeball went from a single light spot on bacteria, which is the little red dot that you see that helps bacteria know where food was and where light was. Food was usually closer to the surface of the water. So when they could perceive light, they could get to the food source, right? So I, I just think that's amazing. It is. Yeah, that they developed this light spot in order to survive. So our eyeball went from the single light spot on the bacterial ancestors all the way to developing insight or the third eye which allows us not only to turn outward to perceive the world around us, but to turn inward as well. We have to, I think, allow these teachings, right view, right thinking, Jesus's way of love and compassion, they, we need to allow them to upend us, to disorient us. Well, what I want to respond to is you're saying that we have a choice about this. And um, the evangelical part of me keeps hammering on this that when you say insight is um, so important this is one of the things that I mean by having a daily spiritual practice people probably are not aware of the fact that maybe the largest spiritual movement in the world is called insight meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you can look Google Insight Meditation Society. I first got introduced to this through the work uh, of Jack Cornfield, mm -hmm. and um, so I encourage people to know how to meditate and to have a spiritual practice, and they're different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I have wanted to ever since I began to get an inkling that my path was that of being a spiritual teacher. I wanted to find a way to offer spiritual teachings that were not exclusive of any point of view. So even though the teachings of Jesus is my home religion, I think that even Jesus would say he welcomes everybody. Buddha would say he welcomes everybody. And th that it is possible to have a strong religious identity without excluding other people. I think it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is what the work of interfaith and interreligious stuff means and how, we, how I think we have to figure out a way to, to do it. Now, if somebody takes up a meditation practice, the first thing that they're going to experience is humiliation, <laughs> failure, because you people enter meditation with this idea, all right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to calm my mind and make my mind blank, and that's wrong, and you can't do that, but one of the things that you discover as soon as you close your eyes is that your, your, your mind is off in a thousand different directions. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in meditation teachings, the meditation teachers call this monkey mind. Mm -hmm. I, yesterday was doing yoga, which like I didn't set myself up great because I was in the, in the living room with my yoga mat and there's lots of activity going around. But you know, the last part of the yoga practice is the Shavasana. And that's sort of your meditative moment. You're letting go of everything. <laughs> the middle of the Shavasana, I pop up and I'm like, Cole, stop doing that. Ask me how well my, <laughs> my monkey mind was shutting off yesterday. Well, your mind has a mind of its own. Right. And, and uh, yeah. the, the 
effectiveness of insight meditation is to gain insight into the workings of your mind. So easily So that you begin to know, oh, that's how my mind is working. And, and so, so you sit down on uh, wherever you do your meditation. I recommend uh, that you have a regular place uh, to do it and regular rituals to get into it. We have these mind-altering rituals that we do all the time. Yeah. You have a mind-altering ritual to go to bed. You know, you floss your teeth, you brush your teeth, you do whatever, comb your hair, get into bed, you read a little bit and turn off the light. That's, that's a mind-altering process of sleep. Going you comb in. your hair before bed? Hmm? You comb your hair before bed? No, I just made that up. Okay. I don't have much hair to comb anyway. <laughs> so, um, so you sit on, on your cushion or your bench or your chair and it, your mind says, well, there's no sense in wasting this time. Let's make out a grocery list. That's right. Let's do something. So it was in the process of doing my first and only 10-day meditation training that I came up with, um, and this has changed over the years. So this, is, this is the way that I'm saying it now. The entire content and process of spiritual practice is developing the ability to see what is, that's the insight, mm -hmm. and to be with what is in non-judgmental and compassionate ways. That's a spiritual aspect. Right. So uh, when you go deeper into Buddhism, when you go deeper into the teachings of Jesus, you will see that what Jesus calls prayer and what Buddha calls meditation always ends up in a way of what Karen Armstrong calls praying the, the immeasurables, sending out loving kindness and compassion, sending out wellness, being aware of the hurt in the world and wondering how we can interface with that. Um, I love these words uh, uh, from Buddha, and I have them in my daily practice. The thought manifests the word. The word manifests the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. Now, this is the reason I put patience in the uh, qualities of spirituality. Peace, love, joy, patience. Mm -hmm. Patience is that deep breath we take before we shoot a finger to the guy who cut us off on the freeway. So at least we've taken a breath before we... Well, we try not to do that <laughs> because it does damage to us. Right. It does Absolutely. damage to the person who does it more than to the recipient. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen, as maybe you have, over the past few weeks, people shouting and screaming at others who suggest that they might want to wear a mask in public. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, yeah, I see the rage in these people. And, it, and the damage it does to them before they express it to uh, any, anyone else. Um, in Vipassana meditation, we were taught at the end of every meditation period to offer something like this. Now, it varies from tradition to tradition and from teacher to teacher. But may I be filled with loving kindness and compassion. May mm -hmm. I be well. May I be peaceful and ease. May I be happy. May no harm come to me. May no difficulties come to me. May no problems come to me. May I always meet with success, not in Western terms. Mm -hmm. 
And may I be given the patience, the courage, the understanding, and the determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties and problems and failures that come to me in life. That's a beautiful prayer. And after you say it about yourself, yeah. you begin to extend it outward and outward to people in your family, to people in your uh, community, and then you want to eventually uh, begin to include the whole world. Uh, Pima Children is excellent in um, shaping these kinds of prayers to include the worst of people and the worst of conditions. But it's what we admire about the saints in our lives. Well, I go back to like right thinking or right view. It is led with compassion. It does mean radical inclusivity. It doesn't necessarily mean acceptance of, um, I want to say, wrong behavior or wrong action, right? It, it means, it is accountability with, ex with acceptance of the person, right? You will be held accountable. We will work on this, but, but you're, not, you're still included. There, there was a, a news story. Uh, actually, it was something that Trevor Noah did in his show. Uh, but it was a news story about an African-American woman in Atlanta whose optical shop had been horribly vandalized, broken into during the, the, the recent riots and um, protests that led to riots in Atlanta. And the newsman who was interviewing this woman whose shop had just been just torn apart said what do you think about the people who did this and she said I think they must be in a lot of pain yeah and and I thought what an admirable response she had every right reason to to say I hate them and hope they go to hell and all that sort of stuff but she just said people who did this must be in an awful lot of pain I want to share something that I read in the most recent issue of Lion's Roar, which is one of the Buddhist journals I take. And I want to warn you straight up that there's a word in it you don't ever hear in church. <laughs> but it, I couldn't think of a- These are not normal times. These are not normal <laughs> times. And I couldn't think of a, uh, another word to do it. One of the most respected American, American teachers of Buddhism is Sylvia Burstein. And Sylvia adapted the prayer, if you want to call it that, that uh, comes from the, the Vipassana tradition, which she is in, to go like this. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my body be strong and may I live in ease. And then she wants to continue that out to other people, just like in the original prayer. But I say it again because I want to follow it up with two verses that she added to it. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my body be strong and may I live with ease. And when I feel captured by the bad habits of my mind, may I say, I am polluting my mind. It is turning into shit. I am mortgaging my happiness, so I'm vowing to quit. I'm concentrating on what is good. I am mindful of who is kind. I am amplifying my blessing, so I am purifying my mind. The point is that we cannot stop thinking, but we can stop attaching to our thoughts uh, about things. Um, 
I would like to uh, add that it's important to stress that thoughts and feelings are not facts. Right. It's a great help in realizing when I get upset that uh, anger is present. That feels a whole lot different than saying I am angry. Mm-hmm. Sadness is present rather than I'm sad. Mm-hmm. There's a, a story that one of my teachers uh, told me uh, years ago about this man who was pushing a baby carriage in an airport. And uh, the man kept saying, the baby was in a meltdown and just screaming his head off. And, and the man uh, kept saying, be calm, Colin. Just relax, Colin. Take a deep breath, Colin. We'll be home soon, Colin. Just take it easy, Colin. And somebody walking nearby said, um, you are certainly being compassionate toward your child, Colin. And the, the man said, um, oh, no, that's George. I'm Colin. Yeah. <laughs> so he was talking to himself yeah. about how to proceed with this so upsetting. Been there. So yeah. You've been there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so when we think about points of view, it is so that there are many points of view. And we are in right view when we're led with compassion and insight and wanting to create a deeper understanding. So Colin in this story is giving compassion to himself. That's the first step, right? Compassion to self then can emerge as compassion to others. So Buddha challenged his followers not to take his words uh, sorry, at face value, but to really examine and investigate and deepen them thoroughly. And he says, if they don't prove worthwhile, let them go. Forget it. Find something else. So he's not even attached to his own teachings. He's saying, these can be useful. Try it out. But I want to interject here. When I have people who are directees and I say, I want you to take up a meditation practice and they come back a month later and they say, I say, how's your practice going? And say, well, quit. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean it didn't work? Well, I tried it for a couple of weeks and I didn't get anything out of it. Yeah. And I want to say, come back in 90 days. Right. Do it every day right. for 90 Set days. Set a timer for 30 minutes yeah. or and whatever. Then come back yeah. and tell me. That's right. I think, and that's what I think the Buddha means is like, it's not just a like, oh, I'm going to taste that chocolate. It's like, no, you really need to learn how to make the chocolate and then tell me if it works. Then time with Right. It. Right. So such is also the way of the scientist, right? When he's grappling with theories of expansion, let's say. He works and works and works on an equation until, it, you know, the, the, the thinking takes him in a whole other direction. And usually this other direction happens when we kind of step back. I think that's what the Buddha calls unattachment, right? When we can get out of our sort of single-minded, myopic way of seeing, when we take the whole in... I like this idea of taking the whole of the night sky in as opposed to just a single star. We can't see Orion if we're only looking at Betelgeuse, right? Which is part of Orion, but we can't see the whole if we're only focusing on that one piece. And, you know, remember that it took Einstein an entire decade to fully accept his theory of relativity. And he finally did so when he looked through Hubble's giant telescope and actually saw it happening in the grandeur of the sky. He literally had to step back and see the bigger picture. So speaking of Einstein, this is what he wrote about Buddhism. It has the characteristics. I want to pause and say that the background picture is a a Hubble telescope picture of red shift happening. In other words, the movement of 
galaxies far away in real time. And, and it creates a kind of infrared light as they move. It has the characteristics of what would be expected in a cosmic religion for the future. It transcends a personal God, avoids dogmas and theology. It covers both the natural and the spiritual, and it is based on a religious sense, aspiring from the experience of all things, natural and spiritual, as a meaningful unity. If there is any religion that would cope with modern scientific needs, it would be Buddhism. To experience oneself as something separate from the rest is a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. So the Buddha's way is not simply individual freedom from suffering, but widening compassion for all beings. Thich Nhat Hanh says, if our path is not noble, if we enter the path with ignoble intentions, if there is craving, hatred, ignorance, and fear in the way we live our daily life, and we enter the Eightfold Path captured by these things, suffering will continue to be the outcome. There's a difference between acknowledging craving, hatred, ignorance, and fear, as you say, anger is present, fear is present, and being captured by it. Being captured by it is, is holding on. I am fearful. I am, I, you, you take it in almost as an aspect of self rather than something that is present. It's also just as dangerous to deny these things as it is to be caught by them. I also want to remind us that this path is not a one-time thing. It's not a hike with a beginning and an end. We walk among this web continually. The spiral is in perpetual motion. I love this picture of the Eightfold Path where every piece of the path is pointing to every other piece of the path. So it doesn't start and end with one thing and, and end with another. It, it, they're continually pointing and ricocheting and echoing off of each other. So this is because that is. To intellectually understand this, I think, is one thing, but both Buddha and Jesus point to the importance of practicing it, which is exactly what this Eightfold Path deepens. When we really get this, what MLK Jr. termed the inescapable network of mutuality, we are practically compelled then to think compassionately. Last week when we talked about right view, which can essentially be summed up by the realization of suffering, and once we realize suffering, we begin to imagine, even in the smallest ways, that there might be liberation from suffering. It's to accept that there is a path lit by compassion and insight, as well as to accept there are many different locations on the path. I think you know, we have to remember that everyone is being 100% themselves 100% of the time. It doesn't mean we're always doing things right. It doesn't mean that we're always doing the right thing. It just means we're doing the thing we know how to do. And sometimes we're caught in the shadows. But growth is about examining what we think and asking what blocks us from having a more compassionate view. So if we find ourselves in reactivity, we have an opportunity to ask, what is blocking me? What is making me reactive here? What is blocking me from compassion? That's the pause. That's what meditation teaches us is the pause. Growth is also about wanting liberation from suffering for everyone, not just for the self. And in terms of relativity, our growth is entirely relative to our willingness to participate in it. And some people don't want to grow precisely because it's hard mm -hmm. and scary. It forces us to change. Even if you're in denial of it, as you said, though, change is always happening. Whether we accept it or not, 
change is always happening. And this is, I think, where the human has a unique perspective. We can choose it. We can choose change. So I want to tell you openly, I'll just come forward with this. There are spiritual directors and teachers who disagree with what I'm about to say. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the reasons that I personally stress the importance of the head part of spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we are going to grow in these spiritual manners, we have to have models of spiritual growth. Right. And they're available from, you know, everything from the intellectual aspects to the moral aspects to the spiritual aspects. Right. Kohlberg, um, Jim Fowler, um, these people have done huge amounts of research in what it means to move from one step to another. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just yeah. want to put that in. If How do you know that you're growing? Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we, we can only know that when we sort of take step back and take in the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Right. So right view is foundational to the path. But when it's solid in us, then right thinking arises, which is where we are in the path. And naturally, right thinking improves right view. Right view improves right thinking. Again, these are all inter, they inter are with each other. I had not seen this uh, yeah. diagram before, but I think it's brilliant. Yes, Thich Nhat Hanh uses it too. And he, he talks about these, so it's sort of like the Enneagram. Each one points right. to another aspect. So it's more than, than a teaching on simple cause and effect, which is where one cause precedes one effect. But rather, it's the principle that cause and effect co-arise. This is called interdependent co-arising. Cause and effect are always arising together, and everything is a result of multiple causes mm -hmm. and multiple effects. I'm going to present to you some right understandings that I've borrowed from Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote The Warmth of Other Suns. One, the United States enslaved Africans and their descendants for 246 years. This amounts to 12 generations of enslaved people. Beyond enslavement, people were impacted by failures of reconstruction, the Great Migration, Jim Crow laws, voter suppression, lynchings, and race-based murders. Number three, no adult living today will see a time when the time of enslavement is equal to the time of freedom. This is still 105 years off. Wow. Mm -hmm. Number four, slavery was traumatizing. And I argue that it left both white and black folks spiritually bereft, spiritually traumatized. Number five, the effects of trauma impact cellular memory for up to seven generations, possibly more. We're not yet seven generations, even out of emancipation, right? We're just at that point. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely not seven generations out of Jim Crow laws, out of the civil rights. We're not seven generations out of the trauma that's still occurring today that is manifest in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's possible to recover from trauma, but it doesn't happen without attention. So change doesn't happen without attention. All of these affect our current social environment, and we are a nation in trauma. We have to confront these political and social truths to undergo a spiritual transformation or this altar call, mm -hmm. if you will. And when we engage with our right understanding through a lens of radical empathy, we are in right thinking. I want to differentiate between sympathy, which is looking at someone and saying, I feel so bad for you. Whereas empathy, it looks like getting inside of someone's experience and feeling with, right? Being able to, to look at it through their eyes. Right thinking is to understand that racism didn't suddenly worsen over the last few months, that it is actually foundational. 
And many of us aren't in right understanding of this fact, so we have some, some room to grow here. We just want it to go away. We think it should be gone. But to bring it back to that messy closet analogy that I used last week, we need to be in reality about what's in the closet, right? What our shadow aspects are. And we need to, this current revelation demands that we attend to the legal, economic, and social systems, all of which have historically favored white folks and make them work for the most people most of the time. I think we're in a turning point. It's not in this, the, the, the protests that have occurred after the killing of George Floyd are not an isolated event, but I think an altar call to participate in change. Um, you know, there's, Thich Nhat Hanh offers us even a path towards right thinking. He says there are four steps to right thinking. I just jumped way ahead. Do you want to say something before I no. do that? <laughs> it's because we all no, We may come back and pick this up yeah. next Yeah, time. so maybe but this do, is, do these. We'll, where we'll end and also where we'll begin again. Yeah. Right? So the, we were talking earlier about this kind of spaciousness or patience that is lacking in our spiritual practice in many aspects of our life. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says that there are ways that we can practice spaciousness when we're in right thinking. There are four steps to it. One is to ask ourselves when a thought arises, are you sure, to check in with it. Number two is to say, what am I doing? This releases us from our thinking about past or future and returns us to the present moment. What am I doing right now? Number three, hello, habit energy. <laughs> I'm stuck in that rut of uh, judgment. I'm or, mortgaging my mind. Right, I'm mortgaging my mind. Tara Brock says, even the most minute disruption of habit energy begin to create shifts in the brain. Right. And number four, bodhicitta, which is the mind of love. And it's defined by a deep wish to cultivate understanding in ourselves and bring happiness to the world. So these... First two steps on the eightfold path, which are not steps in a linear path, mm -hmm. are kind of called the mental disciplines. Yeah. And uh, the next that we will get into, the next four, when we begin next Sunday talking about right speech, we get into the morality teachings. Right. Now, they, you can't separate them neatly like that because right understanding and right thought clearly are what undergird the morality of compassion and inclusion and forgiveness. Uh, we have to know what these things are. and we, we have to open our minds to be able to practice uh, these things. But the behaviors that follow, right speech, right livelihood, the number of other things that we will talk about, uh, they, they're not just ways of being conscious, they're ways of being correct yes. because they are right in terms of what they build for the community. They're not, they're not ethically relative. No. You can do it in many different ways, but they're not ethically relative. They're not ethically relative, absolutely. And, and uh, I wanted to say to people who say, well, we need to move off of this point, something that you said, we didn't get here overnight, we're not gonna get out of this yeah. overnight. And I think that you might think that this pandemic time is a great opportunity for us to become aware of our own identity. The great questions out of the Jewish tradition are, who are we and what are we to do? Those are the questions that inform how we go forward. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to deal with, thanks to Jesus and Buddha. Mm -hmm. It's right. like untangling the worst possible knot in your kid's shoe, right? We're right. just untangling that knot. <laughs>
Um, so thank you for this morning. Thank you for your time. And remember, no matter who you are, uh, I'm glad that you could be with us. And no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, please watch your step because you carry precious cargo. See ya. See you next week. Thank you. Yeah.